Section twenty seven of Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph by Francis Sheridan. Volume two continued. December the twenty sixth. We are preparing to get into the country with all speed. I have writ to Patty to set out with the two children for Sydney Castle as soon as possible. Mr. Arnold has put his affairs entirely into the hands of our worthy friend Lord V, and we think upon a calculation that what we have in town at South Park and at Arnold Abbey will go near to answer the present demands that are upon us. Lady V is the best creature living. She knows that neither Mr. Arnold nor I choose to see any visitors, and she has let in none these two days. I am vexed at laying her under such a restraint, though her good nature will not suffer her to think it one. We shall go out of town on Monday. To-morrow we spend with my mother, as do Lord and Lady V, who are mightily charmed with her, and then adieu to London, perhaps for ever. If my mother comes down to me as she intends to do, I shall have no temptation ever to return to it. Sydney Castle, December the 30th here i am my dear in the house of my nativity your sydney and her arnold as happy as a king and a queen or to speak more properly happier than any king or queen in christendom my two dear little girls are well thank god and look charmingly poor babes they could have no idea of their loss when i left them yet they now seem pleased at seeing me again my faithful Patty is almost out of her wits with joy. I have no maid but her and an honest servant whom my mother left here to look after her house. Mr. Arnold has retained one of his men. The garden is taken care of by an old man in the neighbourhood, to whom my mother allows something for keeping it in order. With what delight do I recall the days of my childhood, which I passed here so happily! you my dear cecilia mix yourself in all my thoughts every spot almost brings you fresh into my memory the little filbert wood the summer-house the mount and the chestnut close that you used to love so but the sight of your old dwelling makes me melancholy i think i could not bear to go into the house the deserted avenue to me appears much darker than it used to do, and your poor doves are all flying about wild, and I think seem to mourn the absence of their gentle mistress. Oh, Cecilia, how exquisite are the pleasures and pains of those of two nice feelings! You, whose sensibility is as strong as mine, know this. From what trifles do minds of such a turn derive both joy and grief? Our names, our virgin names, I find cut on several of the old elm-trees. This conjures up a thousand pleasing ideas, and brings back those days when we were inseparable. But you are no longer rivers, nor I Biddulph. Then I think what I have suffered since I lost that name, and at how remote a distance you are from me, and I weep like a child. But away with such reflections. I am now happier, beyond comparison happier, I think, than I was before my afflictions overtook me. Mr. Arnold's recovered heart I prize 
infinitely more than I did when he first made me an offer of it, because I am sure he gives it now from a thorough conviction that I deserve it, and therefore I am certain never to have it alienated again. January the 4th It is almost three years since I left this place, and the welcomes I have received from all our old neighbours and acquaintance have given me more satisfaction than I can express. Mr. Arnold is highly pleased with the marks of affection which he sees me daily receive from those who have known me from my infancy. I am the more delighted with it, as I think it gives me an additional value with him. Tis a proof at least that I never misbehaved during the long number of years that our former friends knew me and we must needs be pleased to see the object of our love approved of by others. This I speak from my own experience. Mr. Arnold is exceedingly caressed by all our friends, and seems equally delighted with them. You know, we have some of the best of people in the world amongst our old set of acquaintance. If you, my mother, and good Lady V were within my reach, I should think Sydney Castle a paradise. January the 10th. I have had two letters today, one from Lady V and the other from my dear mother. Lady V tells me her lord is bustling about for us to put affairs in the best condition he can. She says he has already got a purchaser for the lease of our house in St. James Street, and all the movables in it as they now stand. They have been valued at £2,700. As most of our plate is there, as well as our chariot and a pair of horses, this has fallen very short of our expectations. But Lady V says she is sure there was not more allowed for the furniture than half their original value, though they have not been a great while in use. She tells me that my lord has employed a person to go down to Arnold Abbey to dispose of the things there but she fears we shall receive a very indifferent return from thence, as there is but part of the furniture of Mr. Arnold's putting in, the old goods being together with the house, going to the widow. My lord's steward at V Hall has instructions about South Park. He writes word to his lord that he believes the whole of what is there will not sell for more than four hundred pounds, the house indeed was but small, and the furniture not expensive. Mrs. Gerard, he says, has had an attachment laid on her house by a person who built some bauble for her in her garden, for which he claims a debt of ninety pounds, though the steward says it's not worth thirty. All things, however, my lady adds, shall be adjusted in the best manner we can, and my lord will not let Mr. Arnold be distressed on account of any deficiency that may happen in these sales. What a jewel, my Cecilia, is an honest, warm friend. The contents of my mother's letter are that Sir George was married yesterday to Lady Sarah P. She says the bride was most extravagantly fine, but looked neither handsome nor genteel. This was much for my good mother to let drop from her pen, but I know she never liked Lady Sarah, 
nor did her ladyship ever treat her with the regard due to her character and to the person of one who was to stand in the close and respectable degree of relationship to her which my mother now does but i believe i have before told you that the blessings of good sense and good temper are bestowed but in a moderate degree on lady sarah and for a woman of quality lady v tells me for i have never seen her her breeding is not of the highest form but you know a great fortune covers a multitude of imperfections in the eyes of most people and i hope her love for my brother will make her a good wife january the twenty-third i am grown a perfect farmer's wife and have got a notable dairy i am mistress of three cows i assure you which more than supply my family then i have the best poultry in the country and my garden flourishes like eden mr arnold is such a sportsman that we have more game than we know what to do with but his chief pleasure is hunting your little namesake promises to be the greatest beauty in the county dolly who is a pretty little cherry cheek and her father's great favourite prates like a parrot how delightful will be the task of expanding and forming the minds of these two cherubs how joyfully and how thankfully do i look back on the troubled sea which i have passed my voyage indeed was not long but my sufferings were great while they lasted i never since i was married enjoyed life till now you know my match was originally the result of duty to the best of mothers and though if i ever knew my own heart it was absolutely freed from all attachment to any other person yet was it not so devoted to mr arnold as to have made him my choice preferably to all other men if i had not resolved in this as in every other action of my life to be determined by those to whom i owed obedience when i married mr arnold i esteemed him a sufficient foundation in the person of a husband whereon to build love that love his kindness and my own gratitude in a little time produced in my heart and i will venture to say few wives loved so well none better you know i could never bear to consider love as a childish divinity who exercises his power by throwing the heart into tumultuous raptures my love though of a more temperate kind was sufficiently fervent to make mr arnold's coldness towards me alone capable of wounding my heart most sensibly but when his coldness was aggravated by the cruel distrust which he was taught to entertain of me the blow indeed became scarce supportable and i did not till then know the progress he had made in my affections sorrows my cecilia soften and subdue the mind prodigiously and i think my heart was better prepared from its sufferings to receive mr arnold's returning tenderness than an age of courtship in the gay and prosperous days of life could have framed it to i exult in his restored affections and love him a thousand times better than ever i did he deserves it i am sure he does he was led away from me by enchantment nothing else could have done it but the charm is broke thank heaven and i find him now the tenderest the best of men 
every look every word every action of his life is expressive of a love next to adoration oh i should be too happy if the blessings i now possess were to be my continued portion in this life there is however but one about which i can rationally indulge any fears my mother her years and her growing infirmities will not suffer me to hope for her being long absent from her final place of felicity you always used to say i anticipated misfortunes this event may be farther off than my anxious fears sometimes suggest to me so no more of it march the tenth my good lady v writes me word that all our business is finished the whole amount of our effects came but to three thousand four hundred pounds our debts including some charges which have occurred in the transacting of our affairs exceeded eight thousand our worthy lord v has paid the whole and has made himself our only creditor we have nothing now that we can call our own but my jointure i do not reckon upon my mother's bounty to us our income from her and the house we live in will be sir george's whenever it is our misfortune to lose her but she tells me she is well and talks of coming down in a fortnight march the eleventh i am here in a scene of still life my dear and you must now expect to hear of nothing but such trivial matters as used to be the subjects of our journals when we were both girls and you lived within a bowshot of sydney castle and saw me every day the last three months of my life have glided away like a smooth stream when there is not a breath of wind to ruffle it and after you have read the transactions of one day you know how i pass all the rest i have told you of everybody that came to see me and all the visits that i returned i have given you an account of all our old acquaintance and of some new ones you know what my amusements are and what my business indeed what i call business is my chief pleasure you who are surrounded by the gaieties of a splendid court had need of the partiality which i know you have for your sydney to desire a continuation of her insipid narrative but i suppose if i were to tell you that on such a day my white guinea hen brought out a fine brood of chickens you might be as well pleased with it as i should be to hear from you of the birth of an archduchess indeed my cecilia there is such a sameness in my now tranquil days that i believe i must have recourse to telling you my dreams to furnish out matter of variety march the nineteenth we have had a wedding to-day in our neighbourhood young maine patty's brother has got a very pretty young gentlewoman with a fortune of five thousand pounds it seems this pair had been fond of each other from their childhood but the girl's fortune put her above her lover's hopes however as he has for a good while been in a very great business and has the reputation of being better skilled in his profession than any one in the country he was in hopes that his character his mistress's affection for him and his own constancy would have some little weight with her family 
accordingly he ventured to make his application to the young woman's brother at whose disposal she was her father having been dead for some years but he was rejected with scorn and forbid the house the girl's father it seems had been a humorist and left her the fortune under a severe restriction for if ever she married without her brother's consent she was to lose it so that in that particular instance of disposing of her person she was never to be her own mistress in the disposal of her fortune however he did not so tie her up for after the age of one-and-twenty she had the power of bequeathing her fortune by will to whom she pleased the brother who is a very honest man had no motive but a regard to his sister's interest in refusing poor mr maine a man of a good fortune had proposed to her whom the brother importuned her to accept of but she was firm to her first attachment the young lover found means to convey a letter to his mistress in which he told her that as he was in circumstances to support her genteelly if she would venture to accept of his hand he would never more bestow a thought on her fortune this proposal the prudent young woman declined on her own part but advised him to make it to her brother as she was not then without suspicions that he wished to retain her fortune in the family and that it was only to save appearances he had proposed a match to her of which he was sure she would not accept but in this opinion she injured him she thought however the experiment might be of use in giving the better colour to her marrying afterwards the man whom she loved but it was an ill-judged attempt and succeeded accordingly for if the brother should have given his consent he could have no pretence for withholding her portion or if he did by so mutual agreement his motive for denying his consent before must appear too obviously to be a bad one the young people not considering this sufficiently resolved to make the trial accordingly mr maine wrote to the brother a very submissive letter telling him he would in the most solemn manner relinquish all claim to his sister's fortune if he would make him happy by consenting to the marriage without which he said the young lady's regard for her brother would not suffer her to take such a step this letter had no other effect than of making the brother extremely angry he sent a severe message to the young man to acquaint him that he looked upon his proposal as a most injurious affront to his character but that he was ready to convince him and everybody else that he had no designs upon his sister's fortune as he would not refuse his consent to her marriage with any other man in the country but himself this was a thunderclap to the poor lover he comforted himself however with the hopes that his mistress's heart would determine her in his favour notwithstanding the severity of the brother there had been it seems besides this gentleman's not thinking maine a suitable match for his sister some old family pique between him and mr maine's father these transactions happened some time before i came to the country just about that juncture the poor girl had the misfortune to receive a hurt in her breast 
by falling against the sharp corner of a desk from a stool on which she had stood in order to reach down a book that was in a little case over it. This accident threw her into a fit of illness, which put a stop to all correspondence between her and her lover. In this illness, a fever, which was her apparent complaint, was the only thing to which the physician paid attention, and the hurt in her breast was not inquired after, so that by the time she was tolerably recovered from the former, the latter was discovered to be in a very dangerous way, and required the immediate assistance of a surgeon. You may be sure poor Maine was not the person pitched upon to attend her, Another was called in of less skill, but not so obnoxious to the family. By this bungler she was tortured for nearly three months, at the end of which time, through improper treatment, the malady was so far increased that the operator declared the breast must be taken off as the only possible means of saving her life. The young gentlewoman's family were all in the greatest affliction. She herself seemed the only composed person amongst them. She appointed the day when she was to undergo this severe trial of her fortitude. It was at the distance of about a week. The surgeon objected to the having it put off so long, but she was peremptory, and at last prevailed. On the evening preceding the appointed day, she conjured her brother in the most earnest manner to permit Mr. Maine to be present at the operation. The brother was unwilling to comply, as he thought it might very much discompose her, but she was so extremely pressing that he was constrained to yield. The attending surgeon was consulted on the occasion, who, having declared that he had no objection to Mr. Maine's being present, that young man was sent to. He had been quite inconsolable at the accounts he received of the dangerous state in which his mistress was, and went with an aching heart to her brother's house in the morning. He was introduced into her chamber, where he found the whole surgical apparatus ready. The young woman herself was in her closet, but came out in a few minutes with a countenance perfectly serene. She seated herself in an elbow-chair, and desired she might be indulged for a quarter of an hour to speak a few words to her brother before they proceeded to their work. Her brother was immediately called to her, when, taking him by the hand, she requested him to sit down by her. "'You have,' said she, "'been a father to me since I lost my own.' I acknowledge your tenderness and your care of me with gratitude. I believe your refusal of me to Mr. Maine was from no other motive but your desire of seeing me matched to a richer man. I therefore freely forgive you that only act on which you ever exercised the authority my father gave you over me. My life I now apprehend is in imminent danger. The hazard nearly equal whether I do or do not undergo the operation, but as they tell me there is a chance in my favour on one side, I am determined to submit to it. I put it off to this day on account of it being my birthday. I am now one and twenty, 
and as the consequences of what I have to go through may deprive me of the power of doing what I intended, I have spent this morning in making my will. You, brother, have an ample fortune. I have no poor relations. I hope, therefore, I shall stand justified to the world for having made Mr. Maine my heir. Saying this, she pulled a paper from under her gown, which she put into her brother's hand that he might read it. It was her will, wrote by herself, regularly signed and witnessed by two servants of the family. "'Sir,' said she, turning to the other surgeon, "'as soon as my brother is withdrawn I am ready for you.' You may imagine this had various effects on the different persons concerned, the brother, however displeased he might have been at this act of his sister's, had too much humanity to make any animadversions on it at that time. He returned the paper to his sister without speaking, and retired. Poor Maine, who had stood at the back of her chair from his first coming in, had been endeavouring to suppress his tears all the time, but at this proof of his mistress's tenderness and generosity, it was no longer in his power to do so, and they burst from him with the utmost violence of passion. The other surgeon desired him to compose himself, for that they were losing time, and the lady would be too much ruffled. The heroic young woman, with a smiling countenance, begged of him to dry his eyes. Perhaps, said she, I may recover. Then, fixing herself firmly in the chair, she pronounced with much composure, I am ready. Two maid-servants stood on each side of her, and the surgeon drew near to do his painful work. He had uncovered her bosom, and taken off the dressings, when Mr. Maine, casting his eyes at her breast, begged he might have leave to examine it before they proceeded. The other surgeon, with some indignation, said, his doing so was only an unnecessary delay, and had already laid hold of his knife, when Mr. Maine, having looked at it, said, he was of opinion it might be saved, without endangering the lady's life. The other, with a contemptuous smile, told him he was sorry he thought him so ignorant of his profession, and without much ceremony, putting him aside, was about to proceed to the operation, when Mr. Maine, laying hold of him, said, that he never should do it in his presence, adding with some warmth that he would engage to make a perfect cure of it in a month without the pain or hazard of amputation. The young lady, who had been an eye-witness of what passed, for she would not suffer her face to be covered, now thought it proper to interpose. She told the unfeeling operator that he might be very sure she would embrace any distant hope of saving herself from the pain, the danger, and the loss she must sustain if he pursued the method he intended. She was not, however, so irresolute, she said, as to desire either to avoid or postpone the operation if it should be found necessary. But as there was hope given of a cure without it, she thought it but reasonable to make the experiment, and should therefore defer the decision of her case to a third person of skill in the profession, by whose opinion she would be determined. The two women servants, who were always professed enemies to surgical operations, 
readily joined in her sentiments, and saying it was a mortal sin to cut and hack any Christian, they made haste to cover up their young lady again. The disappointed surgeon hardly forbore rude language to the women, and telling Mr. Maine he would make him know what it was to traduce the skill of a practitioner of his standing, marched off in a violent passion, saying to his patient, if she had a mind to kill herself it was nothing to him. The modest young man, delighted to find the case of his beloved not so desperate as he had supposed it to be, begged she would permit him to apply some proper dressings to the afflicted part, and conjured her to call in the aid of the ablest surgeon that could be procured, took his leave. The brother of the lady, being apprised of what had passed, lost no time in sending an express to Bath, and by a very handsome gratuity induced a surgeon of great eminence to set out immediately for his house, who arrived early the next morning. But in the meantime poor Maine had like to have paid dear for his superior skill in his profession. The other surgeon had no sooner got home than he sent him a challenge to meet him that evening in a field at some distance from the town. They met. Maine had the good fortune after wounding to disarm his antagonist, but first received himself a dangerous wound. This accident was kept from the knowledge of his mistress, but on the arrival of the surgeon from Bath, as he would not take off the dressings but in the presence of the person who put them on, it was thought proper that both Mr. Maine and the other man should be sent for. The latter was not by any means in a condition to attend, but the former, though very ill and feverish, desired that he might be carried to the house. The bath surgeon, having, in his and the brother's presence, examined the case, declared it as his opinion that the complaint might be removed without amputation, adding that it was owing to wrong management that the grievance had gone so far. He consulted with Maine, in the presence of the family, as to his intended method of treating it in the future. He agreed with him entirely with regard to the propriety of it, and having assured the friends of the girl that he thought him a skilful and ingenious young man, took his leave, being obliged to return directly home. The testimony of this gentleman, whose skill was undoubted, and whose impartiality must be so too, having never seen any of the parties concerned in his life before, wrought so much on the brother of the lady that he did not hesitate to put his sister under the care of her lover. Poor Maine, though scarce able to leave his bed for some time, was nevertheless carried to his patient every day at the hazard of his life. His skill, his tenderness, and his assiduity were all exerted in a particular manner on the present occasion, and in less than five weeks he had the pleasure to see his mistress restored to perfect health. The consequence of this incident was very happy for them both. The brother, exceedingly pleased at his whole behaviour, told him he was an honest, generous fellow, and since he was convinced it was his sister's person, and not her fortune he was attached to, he would with all his heart bestow both on him. And accordingly, 
Mr. Arnold and I had this day the satisfaction of seeing this worthy young pair united in marriage. My Patty is not a little delighted at her brother's good fortune. The honest youth, who has ever since his father's death supported his mother, and as many of the younger children as were not able to gain their own livelihood, has now invited his sister Patty to live with him. But the faithful girl declined the offer, telling her brother she would never quit me, while I thought her worthy of my regard. I look upon myself to be much obliged to her for this, as the station she is now in cannot be so advantageous as I hoped to make it when I first took her into my service. But I will make up in kindness what may be wanting in profit. Indeed, I consider her rather as a friend than a servant, and Mr. Arnold always treats her with respect. March the 20th I am very uneasy at not having it in my power to fulfil my promise to poor Miss Birchill, but that is a string I dare not as yet touch upon. Indeed, I cannot bear any conversation that leads to the subject. Whenever Mr. Arnold begins to accuse himself for his unhappy conduct in relation to Mrs. Gerard, which he often does, I always stop him or turn the discourse to something else. He never speaks of her now, but with a contemptuous indifference, and is so firmly persuaded that she went off willingly with Mr. Falkland, that I dare not as yet undeceive him, which I must necessarily do, should I express even a wish that Mr. Falkland should repair the niece's wrongs by marriage. Mr. Arnold knows nothing of Miss Birchall's affair. I went once, so far as to say, I had heard Mr. Falkland formerly liked this young lady. Mr. Arnold answered, I am glad it went no farther than liking. If it had, probably, I should not have been so soon delivered from my thraldom to her aunt. This reply silenced me. I am exceedingly perplexed about it. Would to heaven Mr. Falkland would of himself think of doing the amiable, unhappy girl justice. My mother writes me word that Sir George had informed Mr. Falkland by letter of the success of his project, and that his answer was full of congratulations and expressions of joy. He is now in Italy, but talks of returning to England next summer. He says he hears sometimes from Pive and that he and his wife live very well together. My mother says she often sees Miss Birchall, and that she encourages her with the hope of what may happen when Mr. Falkland comes back. If this match should ever take place, it would give me most sincere satisfaction. The girl's family is not contemptible, her fortune is pretty large, her person lovely. The unfortunate false step she made is an entire secret, except to the persons immediately concerned, so that, with regard to the world, her character too is good. Mrs. Gerard, at worst, was only her aunt by marriage, but if that circumstance should be the only rub in her way to happiness, I would sooner declare the whole affair and run the risk of Mr. Arnold's being let into this ticklish secret than to be a hindrance to the poor young creature's welfare. This affair never comes across me, but it makes me sigh. God send a favourable issue to it.
End of section 27